grief can be a fragmenting experience, you know, fragmentary kind of thoughts, messy feelings, kind of hard to pin down, a lot of ambivalence. And part of good listening is being okay to let what's messy be messy if someone needs it when they express it. Hello, and welcome to What's Important to You, a podcast created by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning with only one goal in mind, and that is to amplify the volume and reach of diverse voices in healthcare. My name is Terry James Taylor, and I am your host. I plan to give you intriguing insights on various topics, including end of life and grief. I want to open your minds to new perspectives on often overlooked topics. Welcome, everyone. Today's episode is What We Hear, What We Hold, Listening to Loss. And we hope this discussion will help raise awareness about grief and how to support those who are grieving. It is my pleasure to have Kip Ingram and Susan Walensky here with us today. And again, welcome everyone. Kip, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? I am the Director of Bereavement Care Uh, with Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice. I've been director now for going on seven years. I've been with the organization for 10 years as a bereavement counselor. Okay, and Susan? I am one of the bereavement counselors and I've been working with Montgomery Hospice now for about 18 years. Thank you. And so now we're just going to dive right in. So let's first talk a little bit about the title, What We Hear, What We Hold, Listening to Loss. Yeah, Kip and I had had talked about this. I believe it was Kip that came up with this title. Um, Maybe if we could look at the back end of the title first, Listening to Loss. And there's a quote that I found that really um, addresses the subtler qualities of listening. And I'd like to share that. To listen is to continually give up all expectation and to give our attention completely and freshly to what is before us, not really knowing what we will hear or what that will mean. And to listen is to lean in softly with a willingness to be challenged by what we hear. So that's the listening part of that. And as you might expect, um, when we're listening to people about loss, there's a certain amount of sadness and difficulty with some of the things that they bring up in terms of their experience. But there's also a quality of love that we hear in the stories that they share that reflect who these people were to them, what they mean, and what they continue to mean to them. I think that speaking of loss, um, yes, we do hold some of both of those qualities. We hold some of the pain that people share with us and we hold some of the love that we hear as they speak of their experience. And as we do that, I think Kip would agree that we have the privilege of watching them grow and move and change through the process of addressing their grief. Yeah, thank you, Susan, uh, for saying that uh, well. I think the holding piece in this is also in contrast to what we don't do. You know, we don't see ourselves as trying to cure or fix someone uh, because we don't think that grief is pathological. It's not an illness. It's a result of losing someone that we care about in our life. 
So the holding is part of honoring, as Susan said, that love, as well as acknowledging that pain that people are carrying. I think also the importance of holding has to do with the kind of waiting that accompanies our listening and our hearing with others. We're not trying to rush them along. Uh, we're not trying to get them to become coherent or to get to a certain place, but we're trying to come alongside them wherever they may be. And part of that holding then is waiting with them and their own timing and their journey. You know, good listening really is our capacity to identify with the vulnerabilities of another person. And part of that means we have to be alive to our own vulnerabilities. So this is something that we continue to think about in our own lives, in our own journey as professional counselors. Thank you. We just got a lesson just within the title itself. Thank you. <laughs> what are some of the more difficult challenges when it comes to listening to loss? Well, I think um, Kip touched on that in his answer to the first question, and that is that we need to spend so much time really understanding who we are and understanding how things begin to sit with us. We don't listen passively, we listen actively, and it's really important to know how what we're hearing is affecting us because it's going to affect the ability for us to listen to what comes next. The painful parts are hard, that's without saying, but as we mentioned before, there's great reward to being there and being attentive to what somebody wants to share because that's an important part of their healing. Yeah, and I think as Susan was intimating, you know, there's certainly heavy pieces in this because we're accompanying people who are carrying particular kinds of pains and struggles and sorrows. So we wouldn't want to minimize that. But I also want to acknowledge what Susan has said, and I certainly agree with her that, you know, listening comes for us like an unexpected demand. Uh, sometimes that literally happens when someone calls us up and we pick up the phone and we go from there. But the difficult challenge then in listening is what it evokes in us and where that comes from. So being alive to what's going on inside of us as we're listening so that it doesn't impact in a negative way, so that it doesn't get in the way or take the place of the person that we're talking to. And it remains a focus upon them and upon their journey. That becomes hugely important. And I think that's the, that's the biggest challenge uh, when it comes to listening to loss. I, I, I can imagine that because like you said, you can't put yourself into that. And you also have to be ready to receive what someone is saying. I always hear people talk about, it's what you hear. You may, you may listen at what someone is saying, but how are you receiving what they're saying? So yes. trying to remove yourself away from what you're hearing and really tuning into what they're actually saying. Yes, at the same time that you're listening to, in a background way, what's going on inside of you. You know, is there an urge to want to fix them or correct them or to reassure or guide them? And where is that urge coming from? Is it, for example, coming from my anxiety about being able to help them? Is it coming from, you know, something that's part of my own background? So being able to acknowledge that in a way that enables us to put it aside so that there's space for the person and what they're sharing and what they're bringing to that conversation. 
to say too that there are some very practical aspects too to this. And I'm I'm thinking if if we're in a room that's a very public, noisy room, and somebody should bring up something about um, grief that they want to talk about, it's really difficult to um, focus on them. If there's a lot of background noise, a lot of distraction, people coming and going, it's not a private place. So my concern is always, what are they going to say? And how am I going to respond when there are are people around that could be overhearing what we have to say. If the room is freezing cold or boiling hot, you know, I might be crawling in my chair a little bit because I'm physically uncomfortable. So just some of those um, practical kinds of things are really important considerations as well so that both parties, the listener and the person speaking, can feel at ease enough to um, go to areas that are that are painful. And and just with you all saying that, you have a tough job because I remember or always hear us saying people hear what they want to hear in some instances and, and you all definitely can't take it in that type of stride. <laughs> I was just saying, it's like in the quote that I read, it's just, we don't know what we're gonna hear or what it's gonna mean. It's really true. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, part of being in touch with what's going on within us um, makes us aware of what some of our tendencies might be. For example, when we're talking to people who are grieving, particularly early on, grief can be a fragmenting experience, you know, fragmentary kind of thoughts, messy feelings, kind of hard to pin down, a lot of ambivalence. And part of good listening is being okay to let what's messy be messy if someone needs it when they express it and watching our own tendency to try to tidy that up prematurely or make it more coherent than it actually is in their experience because when we do that we run the risk of them then in order to satisfy us becoming or showing a compliant false self just to come across as what they sense we may be wanting. So recognizing what's coming from us within that listening experience is hugely important so that we're creating that space that gives them the freedom to articulate whatever may be going on with them. I like that. Listen, it's not your grief, it's theirs. And so don't try to clean it up. Don't try to touch it. Don't do anything, but let it be. Yeah. Yeah. The next question I have is, what keeps us from listening well to others in their losses? Well, certainly Susan um, mentioned a few things along this line a moment ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. If we're feeling distracted, if we're unfocused, if we're tired, then those are very kind of practical things to be aware of. We want to bring our freshest self, as Susan said at the beginning, to any kind of counseling encounter, any kind of counseling experience that we have. And if we recognize things going on within us that don't allow that to happen, that's something we we need to deal with. I think also uh, sometimes it's not the right time in someone's experience. Sometimes people are ready to, uh, as Susan said earlier, lean into their grief. They're ready to talk about it. Sometimes they're not yet ready. So recognizing that we're not pushing if they're not ready and recognizing where they are, both the possibilities as, and the limits uh, can be a hugely important thing. I think um, along with that too, and this 
touches a little bit on, on what you said before. Um, sometimes when somebody mentions an aspect of their grief, somebody they lost, maybe some qualities about that person, there can be such a temptation to say, oh yes, I had a grandfather just like that. He smoked a corn pipe and <laughs> whatever that quality might be. And then we're often running with our own story and remembrance. And we don't mean it to be that way. You know, we're, we're maybe letting them know that we understand that, that we share a little bit of that experience. So that is one of the places that we need to be particularly careful that we haven't shifted from them into us um, innocently, but still. Oh. <laughs> I'm so guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all so are. So thank you all. I am so guilty. <laughs> Well, we all we all do this at times in this kind of normal everyday conversation with family and friends. But it's interesting when you start paying attention to it, how subtle it can be. For example, someone uh, might come up to you as a colleague and say, you know, I just didn't sleep very well last night. And our response might be, well, you know, I had a really great night's sleep. In fact, I went and got a mattress last week and it has been so good. And, you know, on and on and on. All of a sudden we flipped their story and we've made it our own. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of thing happens and it's usually fairly innocent in our, you know, kind of everyday conversations. But in counseling, that's the tricky thing where we're not here for ourselves. We're here for the others. Uh, so I, I can appreciate what you're saying, Terry, in terms yeah. of our everyday conversations. And like you say, if we really tune in yeah. to ourselves and pay attention, we, we I think we all may do it more than what we no, and just listening to the way you all are sharing that, I'm definitely like that. <laughs> there's, there's another quality to listening to, and particularly to people who are grieving. And that is that sometimes people need to repeat their story more than once. Sometimes they need to repeat aspects of it over and over and over again. This is part of what they need to do is they begin to move through some of the tasks of their grief. So as listeners, we may find that, oh, we've heard this before. And there could be a certain tendency perhaps to feel a little impatient. You know, we wanna move on with the story. We've heard this before, certainly hearing it once was enough, but it's not, it's not enough. And sometimes to just remember that the person needs to tell the story over and over, and we may be the person that needs to hear it over and over, and that that's important. And we just need to patiently be in that place with them and allow for that, because that's when we're going to begin to be a partner to the growth that they are moving towards. Is there yeah. ever a time when someone is repeating for long periods of time where it appears that they're not moving on or, or that it's not healthy? Yeah, there, there can be that. Um, I would like to say in my experience that that is less the, the um, situation than that somebody's just needing to repeat for a while and then they move on. But it is possible for someone to get stuck in their grief. And that's a place then that needs some special attention. 
that might not be just ordinary listening. That may be something that needs the special attention of a private counselor or something like that, that can meet with the person on a regular basis and help them move past what's blocking them to uh, a place that allows for more movement. Yeah, I, I agree with you know what Susan has said with those certain situations that arise from time to time where someone is completely stuck almost in a holding pattern in their grief and, and can't seem to move forward and they're caught up in patterns that aren't good in terms of their coping and aren't, aren't as healthy as they could be in terms of their own life and their functioning. And those are the areas where we would want to look for additional support for them in terms of the complicated grief or the prolonged grief that they may be experiencing. But as Susan said to begin with, a lot of people in grief will circle back and tell their stories and repeat things again and again. And it's kind of like a, a jazz combo. You know, the conversation doesn't happen in a straight line. And when a jazz combo, a good creative jazz combo plays, they're, they're playing repetitions, right? They come back to the baseline and then they add certain riffs and there are certain creative things that grow out of it. And then they circle back to the baseline again and they do it again and again. And that's kind of how some conversations go with people in their grief, because as they repeat it and circle back, they're working on certain things. It's as if there's certain things in their experience that aren't finished with them yet. And they're trying to work through them to make some sense out of them, to find a place to put them in their story and in their experience. And that is a very kind of healthy, normal experience that people have. When my mom, uh, my mom died of cancer and in the last few years of her life, I was with her at a lot of uh, medical visits with doctors. And I noticed from my mom that um, whenever a doctor would come, she would, um, she would invite the doctor to stay as long as the doctor was willing to stay uh, <laughs> with repeated questions, you know, circling again and again and again. And it was almost as if she was wanting him to hear something else in what she was asking. She was really looking for reassurance about her journey reassurance about certain fears that she was carrying and the the repeated nature of her questions were being driven by that more so than the specific answers that she was getting and sometimes people repeat like that because they're wanting us to hear other things in what they're saying mm -hmm. so being able to honor and acknowledge and sort that out can be a huge part of good listening I think yeah that I, I can only imagine that. And that's what comes to wanting to know a little bit about what makes good listening. Because sometimes people are very well aware of what they're saying, but wants to make sure that you are being a good listener and that you're hearing them. So what makes for good listening? I think it starts with being non-judgmental. When, when I've had a conversation with somebody over time, and they say something about um, the listening that I've been able to do. What I really feel like they're saying is that I haven't suggested that there's anything wrong with what they've said, that there's anything missing with what they've said, that I graciously listen and hold what they have to say. And they feel safe in, in doing that. If, if, if we don't feel that somebody is judging us, I think it creates a comfort level 
to say a little bit more, say a little bit more, reveal some worry they have or concern they have or pain that's been you know, inside deep and that they haven't maybe felt like they wanted to share with somebody. And yet it's been important to be able to do that. So I think that that's one of the starting places for me is to just simply be with the person in a patient, non-judgmental way and see where that person takes me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what Susan said. And, and in a sense, it's kind of countercultural, isn't it? I mean, we are we're constantly being jammed uh, by powerful forces in our society, uh, cultural, social, economic uh, forces, advertising forces that constantly want something from us, right? So to create a space in the culture where there's no judgment, where no one wants anything from you, uh, but simply is giving you the space to articulate certain things that are going on in your life. That's a huge opportunity and a huge gift. And I think you know, part of why Susan and I are doing this podcast for National Grief Awareness Day is to remind people and encourage people to claim and find that space for themselves when they need it. That kind of countercultural space of acceptance and acknowledgement that says, you know, I can offer another person the difficult things that are going on with me. And when they give it back to me without judgment and with affirmation, I can then carry it a little easier. And that's a real gift, I think, in our society. It is. And a lesson learned today not to insert yourself as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think think if we could also interject the notion of how important silence is. mm -hmm. Now, when we listen, we are hopefully being silent. And sometimes... We want to acknowledge what somebody says and maybe do a little bit of acknowledgement to let them know that we've heard what they have to say or that what they've said isn't in fact crazy because people sometimes will say, I feel like I'm going crazy. So we want to reassure them that that's not the case. But we want to, if we allow for quiet time, for spaces that are sometimes allow us to feel or or make us feel a little bit awkward. If we can allow that silence to exist, that allows the other person to go to a quieter place inside and to maybe come forth with something that they wouldn't have said otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I think in in normal conversation, we typically go back and forth, back and forth with not a lot of silence between those exchanges. But when we're listening to somebody in this situation where they're grieving, if we can keep in mind that sometimes silence is an encouragement, it's a gift to allow somebody to unfold a little bit more, to go a little bit deeper, then we can be more comfortable with those silent, silent times. Yeah, I, I resonate with that too. And I think that's part of what we mean by this holding that we're we're holding the sense of that we're waiting and providing those moments and those spaces of silence in which people are formulating or struggling or trying to name something they may have be feeling or something that's been hard for them to acknowledge or to name up to that point. Susan and I will sometimes talk about this idea of listening people into language. You know, part of the myth that's out there in our world is that people already know their mind before they speak. 
And I don't think that that's necessarily true. And especially when people are grieving, that part of offering the silence and part of offering open-ended questions with lots of room between them is giving people a chance to find the language to discover what it is they're thinking and feeling by putting some words to it. And when we do that, we're listening them into that kind of language, which is, which is hugely important. And it's, it's not the kind of thing that we can engineer in advance. You know, there's no listening model or technique that Susan and I can give that would guarantee a successful conversation. We always have to engage the risk. Uh, knowing that we can't predict the impact of our words in advance, what we'll have on each other. So providing that space and that slow rhythm that works for the person that we're talking with, that enables us to then listen them into a language that's going to be meaningful. And the goal of that is to find a conversation that feels worth having. I, I agree with, with all those points that you make and maybe just to add the thought of being curious. If we maintain that attitude of curiosity, then I think we are encouraging the unfoldment of the other person's story and it's allowing us in a, in a more specific way to kind of step into their shoes, if you will, or allow them to tell us what it's like to be in their shoes. And that will allow us to uh, grow in empathy for what their story is about. And that kind of goes hand in hand with not being judgmental. So yeah. that curiosity is an important quality. Yes, having worked with Susan many years, curiosity is one of her great gifts and skills in her counseling. And curiosity enables questions to be offered gently rather than sounding like an interrogation. I mean, you can take 20 questions and mm -hmm. you can offer them in such a way that it sounds like you're interrogating someone and nobody wants to be interrogated, right? right, but right. If, you're, if you're curious about something and you want to explore that and you gently say, you know, I'm hearing some real sadness in what you're saying about your experience the other day. Can you tell me a little more about that? I'm curious to know what that was like for you then that brings a kind of gentle quality that is more inviting mm -hmm. uh, and conducive to a good, good conversation. And, and make a person feel more comfortable. And so I'm curious to know, do people tend to grieve in predictable patterns? I don't think that there's too much that's predictable about grief. <laughs> when, when Kip was talking about how messy it is, I guess that's predictable. It, in most cases, it is quite messy. Um, but I would say that there are some similarities that we see, some themes, if you will, that do come up from time to time that are heard in, in one story to the next. One, one of those qualities would be that the emotional pain tends to be a lot more intense at the beginning. And it tends to be uh, a little bit easier over time as somebody uh, does their grief work. So I'd say that that is one tendency that we see, but like, like we say, it's not 100% in everybody's situation. Yeah, I think apart from kind of like the broad tendencies that Susan is suggesting, there really isn't a predictable pattern or predictable patterns in people's grieving that we hear. 
certainly in our field, you know, we've heard everything from, you know, the five stages that were associated with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross to other kinds of grief models and tasks and that kind of thing. And we learn them all in our work, but we also sit loosely to them because the whole direction of our field has moved away from predictable patterns to emphasizing the uniqueness of everyone's grief. Mm -hmm. And the more you talk to someone, the more singular they become. And so sure, in very abstract levels, we could talk about you know, particular predictable patterns, but everybody is, is unique. And what counts as a good conversation, a supportive, effective conversation is going to be singular to that individual in each instance. And, and just like the loss is different, you yeah. know? So I can, and so the individuality of the pattern of grief, I can see being totally different. And people will ask us all the time, how long is this going to go on for? Because the pain is so uncomfortable with their grief. And the only thing that we can say is that we don't know. There's so many questions that we field from people about the journey that they're going through with their grief, but we don't know just what twists and turns are gonna be part of their story. So mm -hmm. it's just a matter of reassuring them that you'll be there, we'll be there for whatever comes up. Mm -hmm. um, for parents who have lost a child, what particular issue or challenges do you hear about in working with them? Okay, I um, have the privilege of being on the, our pediatric team, uh, Montgomery Kids team. And I've worked on that team for, I don't know, five years maybe at this point. And I've heard many parents tell their story. I would like to say that these stories tend to be some of the more difficult ones. And I almost hesitate to, to speak for these parents. I, I haven't lost a child myself, but I can perhaps say a little bit about what I've heard. And if people would just take it from that standpoint, these are just some things that I've heard. But what I, I've noticed is that there is a tendency in most every person who's lost a child for them to carry a certain amount of trauma in their grief. Um, it's a huge loss to lose a child of any age and particularly a young child. And the, the kids that are on the pediatric team are young. So there's a tendency for parents to ask certain questions. Questions that I often hear are, why did this happen to my child? Why did it happen to our family? Um, what did I do wrong that this is happening here? Was there something that I could have done to prevent this from happening? Did I not take my child to the right doctor? Did we not feed my child the right food? Did we not have you know, the, the right environment in our house to keep this illness away or allow this illness to heal itself. So I would say those are some of the kinds of questions that often come up for these parents. And it's a more protracted kind of grief that I perceive with this group of people. And by that, I mean, our grief is always there. Once we experience a loss, we carry that grief for the rest of our lives. With that said, at the very beginning, we 
we often feel the weight of that grief to be much heavier than it is after some time. And this is a generalization, so take it for that. So with this group of parents, um, we're typically with the adult patients that we have in hospice, we'll follow those family members for a year. With the pediatric parents who are surviving the loss of a child, we follow them for two years. And two years is just a scratch on the surface, but it is an amount of time that allows them hopefully to get to a little bit different place so that they feel that they can carry that grief a little bit more comfortably than they um, were at the very beginning. I think another, another aspect that we hear from them that's also um, something that shows with other types of losses as well is to try and find some meaning in that loss. If a young child dies, I think it's very common for us to ask ourselves, you know, what was the purpose of this life? This life that lasted a few months or a few years that didn't get to adulthood, that didn't get a chance to understand really who they were as an adult. And I think that's a very valid question that many parents ask and is part of their assessment of who they are as parents too. Um, what did it mean that they had this child for such a short time? How do they make sense of that? How do they preserve the memory of their child, um, which is so important to them? And they want others to also remember this child who existed on the earth and played and, and had wonderful times. They want the qualities of that child to be remembered by other people as well. And that begins to help these parents to feel that there is some purpose that that child um, served as they walked the earth and the things that that child really loved can continue to be experienced and loved by others as well. Um, how do you help parents that when a child has died that young, how do you help parents transition through thinking about um, like the child's first day of school, then going into middle school and then would be getting married or going to college and getting married and then having families of their own. That is a, from me just thinking about what you're saying, mm -hmm. that is almost feel like a lifetime because there's different types of events that take place that would, would, would have taken place in a child's life. How do you help someone through that portion of grief? It's That's ongoing. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's something that almost doesn't end because you keep thinking mm -hmm. about, you know, if Michael were still here, Michael would be a part of this celebration or this, this event that's inclusive of all of our family. So there's nothing that's gonna take that pain away and there's nothing that's gonna take that connection away. And I wouldn't want to do that with anyone anyway. But there are ways that we can talk with parents about bringing their child into other family events, maybe having a candle lit for them or a photograph of them at, at an event, or maybe they um, have a special item that connects them to that child that they might want to put in their pocket, a piece of jewelry they might want to wear that reminds them of their child and allows the memory of that child to be there 
as well. So, so that is one way to handle some of those events that the child isn't there for. And it's also important with the siblings of the child who are also going through that process. If, mm-hmm. if I have a five-year-old brother who dies and I'm 10 years old, I grieve for that brother as a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. And when I'm 15, I may grieve differently for my brother because now I have a different awareness, a different maturity. And when I'm 30, and I get married and my brother isn't there, I may want to remember him in some special way for that event. So this is something that recurs also for the siblings. So it's a family affair to incorporate that child in uh, family celebrations and remembrances. Okay, thank you. And um, I also have been curious and I'm sure the audience is curious as well when it comes to um, supporting in grieving people. How do you support people who are grieving sudden or unexpected losses? You know, some, when someone is ill or terminal, you, you, you know that that's coming, but something that's been unexpected could be very difficult or is very difficult. How are you able to help them? That is a very poignant question, Terry. And it is difficult and can be a challenge because in situations where there's an unexpected loss, there can often be felt a sense of unfinished business with that particular person. You didn't have chance for certain conversations and certain Mm -hmm. kinds of opportunities to express certain things or to seek uh, forgiveness for part of the life journey together that uh, you may be carrying or whatever that might be. So that makes it particularly challenging But giving people an opportunity to name those things can be hugely important. Also recognizing early on that there's gonna be a strong amount of kind of shock and numbness around something that's been unexpected. That's like a protective mechanism that we all employ when something unexpected happens so that we're not too overcome by it. Mm -hmm. So we protect ourselves. People talk about going numb or, You know, they uh, busy themselves with distractions of other things, and that's actually can be a healthy coping mechanism early on, uh, getting through that. In working with people that have had these kind of unexpected losses, I find it's helpful to talk about coping strategies and issues first, kind of how they get through the early days, you know, you know, how's their sleeping and eating, their energy, you know, how are they interacting with people, but also finding low key time for themselves. How are they managing those things? So uh, coping strategies will be important early on. And then coming back to and being able to talk about and work on the unexpected nature of the loss and what that might mean in their lives. I was just thinking when I have talked with people who have had a sudden and unexpected loss, um, very often there's a certain amount of regret. Maybe when they stepped out of the door that morning, uh, we didn't wish them well the way we do every morning, or there were some sharper words at breakfast and we wish we hadn't had those words between us or a chance to Um, let them know how much we love them uh, so that there's an element of that very often that comes up. 
I think um, a lot of forgiveness work that needs to be done. And that isn't forgiving the person who maybe has a tragedy happening to them, but forgiving ourselves for not knowing ahead, which we couldn't possibly know, right. and having been the gentle person that we would have liked to have been had we known. That's that, and that can be difficult and hard and, and another layer of grief on top of the other grief. Exactly. And, and one other thing that I would like to know is we start coming to a close with all of the work that you all have shared with us that you all are doing. Just me listening, it takes a special person to do what you all do. So with listening to difficult losses in your counseling work, what I would like to know, and I'm sure the audience would like to know as well, and it becomes overwhelming, what do you all do for yourself personally? Because you all do a lot. That's a lot of work that you all are doing. <laughs> yeah, all of, we have a number of conversations about this among ourselves as a bereavement counseling staff because we know it's so important. We do a certain amount of debriefing with each other and camaraderie with each other. But we also know it's important to seek that out individually in our own lives. And that's different for all of us. You know, for myself, doing a lot of reading, particularly reading a lot of poetry has been very important to me in recent years. And recognizing, particularly in this pandemic, uh, my need to move and to exercise. I picked up jogging again that I had dropped for, for many, many years. Uh, but those are two particular kinds of things that have been helpful for me in this. Good, good, good. Susan? I have my quiet time a couple times a day where I meditate, and that's uh, very regenerative for me. So I will do that on a regular basis. And I, I like to hike, and I like to be in the woods, and I like to garden and play with my dogs. So I have a, a few things like that going on so that I can get a break and have a little um, restorative time so that my soul can re experience some ease. And in that, um, I have the energy then to go back and be there for somebody else. And a lot of energy you all need after listening to everything that I heard today. And thank you all so much for what you do for um, our families at Prince George's Hospice and Montgomery Hospice and to the community at large, because we don't always serve the people who you all come in contact with because you all do a lot of community work as well. So again, um, thank you both. Thank you. And you're most mm -hmm. welcome. Thank you to our guests, Kip and Susan, and to our listeners. This was What's Important to You, a podcast by Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice Center for Learning with one goal in mind, and that is to amplify the volume and reach of diverse voices in healthcare. To learn more, please visit www.montgomeryhospice.org forward slash podcast and download, share, and subscribe. Thank you so much for joining us today.